We're going to jump right into the passage this morning. So open up to Matthew chapter 5. I think it was last week I said we weren't going to really deal with the passage, right? Wasn't that last week? This, this week is the opposite. We are digging into every word to deal with the passage. We just focused in on one phrase. But we are in Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of one of the most famous sermons ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. I hope that you will forgive me for using someone else's sermons, um, but that's what I'm going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I will be tweaking it, but I, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm struggling with how quickly to move through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, because there's so much here. At the same time, I don't want this Matthew study to last five years, so uh, we're, we're going to take some parts slow and some parts we'll move through it a little bit quicker. But we are going to be just in the Beatitudes this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're at. Um, I'll try to put some of the verses up on the screen for you to be able to follow along. Let me just read verses 1 and 2 for us. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. These are, after an initial, uh, back in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, it said, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now we have a, a fuller sermon from him. What is it that he's saying? How is he explaining what it means to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near? And already we see that crowds have begun to follow Jesus. We also see an interesting split here in the verse. The crowds are following but he sits with his disciples and he teaches them. Now, that's not to say that the crowds went away. They're listening in. But as Matthew does throughout the book of Matthew, he makes or points out a difference between the crowds and the disciples. And I think there's this ongoing question for each one of us, which are you? Are we crowd that just kind of follows along and wants to hear maybe for the entertainment value, or, or are we the disciples that truly want to sit and learn and listen and be cheered? Read now the Beatitudes, one very famous passage of Scripture, chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will, see, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, before we get to the Beatitudes themselves, we need to talk about what Jesus means about blessed. And that's what the word Beatitude means. It means sort of the way of blessing, a blessed life. So what does Jesus mean by blessed? Have you ever heard somebody talk about this passage and say, well, it's basically happy. You could translate it as happy is the one. And some people say that. I think there's even a few translations out there that translate the word as happy. I don't think that's strong enough. I, I just don't think the English word happy is enough to describe what Jesus is saying here. See, happiness is 
completely dependent on me. It's, it's me focused. I can feel happy on my own or based on what's going on around me, but it's very me centered. Blessed or blessed requires a relationship between the one who is doing the blessing and the one who is receiving the blessing. There is no blessed without a relationship. Somebody has to be blessing and somebody has to be receiving the blessing. Now, Scripture talks about we can bless God. Isn't that interesting? Because blessing at its root or at its core simply means to approve of. Now, don't get me wrong. God doesn't need our approval. When we approve of God because he is greater than us, it takes the form of worship or praise. We are blessing God. When God approves of us, he blesses us, it means he accepts us as his children, as his people, that he saves us. So Jesus uses this word blessed to show someone living in a right relationship with God. Someone living in the ongoing state of being accepted by God in a blessed relationship. So that's blessed. And that's going to come into every single beatitude here. But now we need to understand the kingdom aspect here. There is a clash of kingdoms that is introduced in the Beatitudes that runs all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I would say that this clash of kingdoms is the core theme of the Sermon on the Mount. There's our kingdom or the world's kingdom, and then there's the kingdom of heaven. And these two things are adamantly opposed to each other. Look at the first Beatitude, uh, verse 3 there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now skip to the end, chapter, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so what do you do when you see two verses like that in a section, the beginning and the end, and they both have the exact same phrase? This was the author's way, or in this case, Jesus's way of saying, everything I am about to say, everything in between these two things is about that theme. It's about the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are being blessed, living a blessed life, because you are part of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the fact that this is right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount means the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is about being part of the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom living, as we've talked about in Matthew, is living in a right relationship with God. Living in a right relationship with God. Jesus came to bring the kingdom. And wherever Jesus has come, the kingdom has broken through. It has come into our present existence and it is growing. And we are to live as ambassadors of this kingdom. In fact, that's what we'll look at next week in verses 13 through 16, being the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We are ambassadors of this kingdom. So the Beatitudes are about sermon living. All of the sermon on the earth, kingdom living, sermon living. All of the the, uh, sermon on the mount is about kingdom living. But we need to ask ourselves, as the Beatitudes and the sermon on the mount lay out what is expected in the kingdom of God, what is normal in the kingdom of God, maybe kind of the rules of the kingdom of God, if we want to think of it that way, We need to ask ourselves, what about grace? Is Jesus just giving us a checklist here 
that we check these righteous things off. And if we do that, then we're in the kingdom. And it's going to be very easy to fall into that trap. And I want us to understand where all of this is coming from. I referenced it earlier, but look at chapter 4, verse 17. Because Matthew introduces everything that Jesus says. He says, from that time on, he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That is a summary of what Jesus preached. Here we have the content of what he preached. So all of the Sermon on the Mount falls under the banner of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What if you think you're good? I know nobody would think that. Nobody in today's world, and certainly nobody in Jesus' world, right? Everybody understood. No, of course, they thought they were good. So when somebody comes along and says, repent, you might go, ah, of what? The Sermon on the Mount is the answer to that question. It's Jesus' confrontation to our sin to say, this is what you must repent of. The Sermon on the Mount is going to destroy any notion that we are good people. And because of that, it is going to make us very uncomfortable. And if it doesn't make us uncomfortable, we need to dig harder because we're not quite getting it. The Sermon on the Mount challenges our kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, this, our contemporary culture, we have ways of thinking, things that we've accepted as normal. These change a little bit, generation to generation. Sometimes you sense that, especially if you grew up or you were part of other generations, and then the norms changed, right? And then you feel that, and you go, oh, man, it's not the way it used to be. When I was a kid, we didn't do these things. You can feel the changing culture. You can sense that. And you know something is wrong. My question is, though, as Christians, are we comparing it to what we used to experience it or experience or are we comparing it to Scripture? That needs to be what we compare our culture to. So there are norms in the kingdom of this world. And when somebody comes along and says that's wrong, well, the kingdom of this world doesn't like it. But there's another kingdom we could talk about, maybe a kingdom within a kingdom. Each want to live in our own unique little kingdom. We each want to live, I want what I want, I want to get on the mount. Is going to come in and clash with our kingdom. Jesus is going to systematically tear down the walls of what especially the people in that day were holding on to. And we're going to see how that attacks or confronts our own kingdoms. It's because it's a call to repentance. Jesus is bringing the people to the point of saying, Jesus, I need you. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And he's going to get past just what we do, just checking boxes, just a list of righteousness, and he's going to attack our heart issue. He's going to say, what is it you think? What is it you feel? What is it you mean? Not just what you do, but what about inside of you and your motivations? We've got to be careful that we don't take this to be very legalistic. We don't take this as a Christian punch list. Just do this and you'll be righteous. We also need to be careful not to take this as something to use to judge and beat up other people. That would be to miss the point. It is a call to repentance. First for us 
and then to offer to others to say, you need Jesus. So let's get into the Beatitudes. You know, normally in a sermon, I've got like two or three main points. I think we have 12 this morning. Um, So here we go. Buckle up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What do you think Jesus means by being poor in spirit? You know what? Let, let's actually do this. What, what do you think? Somebody say, what do you think Jesus means by being poor in spirit? Somebody shout out an answer. Spirit? Oh, nice. I like that. You're reading the same author as I am. Okay, good. That's good. What else? I mean, that's the right answer. But what's your answer? <laughs> yeah, that's the surest way to kill discussion right there. Okay. Spiritually bankrupt. That's really good. I like to think, or it was helpful for me as I was studying this, um, to think about what would be the opposite of poor in spirit, right? And I thought, well, rich in spirit, okay? What, if someone thought that they were rich in spirit, what would they be like? And I thought, well, I think the phrase we would use is self-righteous. Someone who thinks like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm so spiritual, like me and God, we're like this. I'm good. They're self-righteous, Did Jesus ever deal with self-righteous people? All the time. And how does he deal with it? Well, he confronts, but he also loves and shows grace and mercy, which, praise God, because that's all of us, isn't it? So, if the spiritually rich person in their own eyes is to be self-righteous, then the spiritually poor or the poor in spirit is, as Joe said, to be spiritually bankrupt before God. It is to know, to recognize, accept, admit that we are unworthy of being accepted by God. We are unworthy of being accepted by God. Right there at the beginning of the Beatitudes, Jesus pulls the rug out from under all legalistic understanding of what he says. Because if we take anything in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount to say, well, I've done that, I haven't done that, therefore I'm a good person, we have broken the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what is the blessing? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think of the irony of that. Only those who understand that they are unworthy are actually worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Well, that challenges our kingdoms, doesn't it? That that throws everything on its head. This is living a life of repentance. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is to prove to us, to confront us with the truth we must understand we are poor in spirit. This is completely different than our world. Our culture, our world, just as it was in Jesus' day, we want to brag about ourselves. We want to make much of ourselves. But Jesus says we must start with admitting that we are completely hopeless on our own. The kingdom of heaven will be given to those who first understand they are completely unworthy of the kingdom of heaven. Now, before I move on, I think it's important here to understand there's a big difference between being poor in spirit and being the sort of person who always puts themselves down, kind of a self-hatred. 
I want to be careful because I think sometimes as Christians we can, a pendulum can swing and say, okay, I'm going to be poor in spirit. I'm going to be humble. So I'm just a horrible person. I'm an awful person. Let me tell you about how awful I am. Let me count all the ways to you and point out all the ways that I am an awful person. Putting ourselves down, a self-hatred, a self-loathing still keeps the focus on ourselves. More than that, it also put our, puts ourselves in the place of God. Because we're saying, I can judge myself. I have judged myself, and this is what I think. Ironically, self-judgment, self-hatred, self-loathing is just a twisted form of pride. It keeps the focus on self. Being poor in spirit focuses on God. It says, God, you are so great. It's not that I'm a horrible person. It's that I'm nowhere near as great as you are. I fall short. Poor in spirit allows God to be God. And it causes us to respond in repentance. The first beatitude shows that we don't get into the God's kingdom by our own effort, but by accepting our unworthiness. But if we're simply unworthy, and if the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to hammer that point home again and again, which it will, where's the hope? Well, remember one of the ways that Matthew introduced us to Jesus? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will, what? Save his people from their sins. Don't lose sight of that. That's behind everything that Jesus is saying and doing. Here he's going to point out our sin, but behind it is him pointing to himself saying, I am the one who will save you from your sins. You know, in our culture, we celebrate the idea that everyone is good. That every choice, every personal preference is good. That every preference is right and true. And I believe that the idea of poverty of spirit is an attack on our personal kingdoms. Let's look at the next one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This follows the first beatitude. If we truly understand that we are poor in spirit, well, how should we respond? We should mourn. These are not unrelated. Don't just grab one and pull it out. Understand their context If we understand how truly poor in spirit we are, our response should be mourning. Mourning is the proper response to sin. As we look at our own life, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, and God points out areas in our heart where we are sinful, we should mourn. Not justify, not excuse, mourn. But also as we look at this world... As we understand that we are poor in spirit and we look at the world around us, we're going to see sin there too. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to say, oh yeah, our world accepts that and that God says that's wrong. We need to mourn over that. There's a lot of struggle going on in our culture right now. You know, with COVID, as we wear masks and people are fighting over whether or not you should wear masks or not. Did you know churches are actually splitting over that? How stupid, to put it bluntly. How absolutely dumb 
are some of our brothers and sisters in Christ if we are allowing such a silly thing as that to break our fellowship. And it's happening. Think about the struggle we have over race relationships in our culture. Those things, whether it's a disease or whether it's the struggle between races, those are at their heart caused by sin. Sin has come into the world and it has distorted, broken the natural order. So we have things like disease and death. Sin has come into the world and it has distorted the social and broken the social order. So we have things like races that hate each other and growing animosities. And I think we as Christians are so quick to judge. We're so quick to want to discuss. We are so quick to want to share our conclusions. We're so quick to want to go on social media and post the thing that we think will fix everything. Friends, let us hear the words of Jesus here and mourn. If we have not mourned over the sin, we should not be talking about it. We should not be commenting on it. We should not be trying to fix it through our social media posts. Let's spend more time mourning and less time confronting and judging. Look at the promise. Jesus promises those who mourn they will be comforted. You want COVID to end? I do. You, you want the relationship between the, the beautiful cultures and they've been created by God to be healed and reconciled? I do. And as Christians, let's do our part and let's mourn. Because the comfort that God can bring through racial reconciliation and healing of our world, will be beautiful and wonderful. In our kingdom, we like to celebrate sin or excuse sin. And the concept of mourning over sin is an attack on our kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is the way we live out our understanding that we are poor in spirit. It's the way we live out our mourning regarding sin. Meekness is not being timid or wishy-washy. It's not a false humility. It's not an inability to make choices. Meekness is a choice to live for something greater than ourselves. To live for the glory of God and for the good of others. Love God. Love others. That's meekness. And it says the meek will inherit the earth. This seems so opposite. Those who get it all in our mind are those who reach for it, those who strive for it, those who work really hard. It's the American dream. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We can do it ourselves. Jesus says the opposite. He says to inherit the earth, you must understand that it doesn't come from you and your effort comes from God and living for his glory. You know, it's interesting because meekness was not seen as a virtue in ancient Roman culture. It was actually the opposite. It was a vice. That's like saying it was almost sinful. And the Roman culture's way of thinking of it, it, meekness was weak and wrong. And Jesus comes in and says, blessed for theirs Sorry, I lost my place. For they will inherit the earth. 
Meekness is an attack on our kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. To hunger and thirst for something is to absolutely need it, to desire it and to need it desperately. This flows out of the first three. Poverty of spirit, recognizing worthiness, mourning over sin is is our response to that. Living meek lives is uh, living in recognition of our own worthiness. And then hunger and thirsting for righteousness is saying, I can't do this, Lord. I can't live up to this standard. I need it from you, God. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to seek a righteousness that can only be given to us, can never be earned by us. You see the threads of grace that Jesus is weaving through this, leading up to the gospel. And you might be thinking into this, but but look at the blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. If I am hungering and thirsting for food, and I will be filled, what am I going to be filled with? Food, right? It it doesn't make sense to say, well, you'll be filled with, not really what I'm hungering and thirsting for. So if they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, when Jesus says they will be filled, he's saying they will be filled with righteousness. The thing they are hungering and thirsting for. True righteousness must come from God. It is a gift. It is something for which we are completely unworthy of and unable to achieve on our own. Yet if we come to the Lord in recognition of our own unworthiness and we cry out and we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, He fills us and He fills us through Jesus Christ. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our kingdom says we just have to fight harder to prove that we're right. Christ's kingdom says we need to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that can only be given to us. That's an attack on our kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What is mercy? How is it different from grace? I want to read a quote from D.A. Carson here. The two terms are frequently synonymous, but where there is a distinction between the two, it appears that grace is a loving response when love is undeserved, And mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one on whom the love is to be showered. Grace answers to the undeserving. Mercy answers to the miserable. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. To look at others and see need and to say, what can I do about it? How do I love that person? The first four Beatitudes look at our relationship with God. We are poor in spirit, we mourn for our sin, we live meekly, and we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, Jesus is saying, if if you think this way, if this is the way your heart is, what's going to happen? We're going to look around and see others that are also stuck in misery, that are hurting. And what should our response be? To show mercy. Now you look at this phrase, if blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It's almost like if you don't show mercy to others, God can't show mercy to you. Man, God can show mercy to anybody. It's 
make that very clear. But understand what he's saying. If you don't show mercy to others, you don't understand the mercy that you've been given. If we are unable or unwilling to show mercy to others, then we are proving that we are not poor in spirit. We have not mourned for sin and we are not living meekly and we do not truly hunger or thirst for righteousness. A failure to show mercy is proof that we don't understand the gospel. We don't get it. Our kingdom says that if we could put others down, then that builds us up and makes us look good. Our kingdom says that we should make those who disagree with us look dumb. The call to mercy is an attack on our kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In Jewish thinking, the heart is the center of the personality. It's the totality of their thinking, their way of life, their desires. This idea of heart knowledge, heart's down here, heart knowledge and head knowledge, that's a very modern way of looking at it, okay? That's not a biblical way of looking at it. So when you hear heart, it's not just emotions and head is reason and rationality. In their minds, heart was everything, okay? It's everything all together. Heart is head and heart together in, in our way of thinking. Throughout scripture, we are told that our hearts are corrupted by sin. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Ouch. Our hearts are so infected and infused by sin. Yet, we also have this concept of a pure heart. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So we have corrupt and wicked hearts that can somehow be made pure. Purity of heart, according to what Jesus is saying, never comes through outward rule keeping. We can't just have the Christian checklist on the wall, do these things and you'll have a pure heart and a righteous life and you'll save yourself. As I said earlier, there's going to be a huge temptation throughout the Sermon on the Mount to turn this into a list of legalistic rules. But Jesus makes it a point throughout the sermon to show that rule keeping is never enough. We can't just change our actions. We must have our hearts changed. And you and I are terrible at changing our hearts. It's impossible with us. To be pure of heart is the exact opposite of being a hypocrite. It's to say that the things that I do come out of the innermost desires of my heart. It is the overflow of what I want. That's where my actions are coming from. When we truly understand our need for God, that we are poor in spirit, that we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, when that is the great desire of our heart, then we come to God and allow Him to do His work in our life. That's where the purity of heart comes from. It says, those who are pure in heart will see God. That is amazing because in the Jewish mindset, you do not see God and live, right? Seeing God was not necessarily a good thing. There are times, very rarely in the Old Testament, people ask to see God. 
But in general, it's a very dangerous thing for a sinner to see the all-holy God. And I almost wonder if Jesus is saying here, you know, if your heart was really pure, you're really living a life of repentance. You're going to see God because he's sitting right in front of you. Jesus is saying, I'm right here. If you would just have the eyes to see me and to see that I am your Savior and I will make you righteous, you will see God. I wonder if so. sometimes we're so busy trying to find our own righteousness that we fail to see Jesus. We're so busy making our own kingdom and our own way of doing things that we don't stop and lay our heart down at the altar of the Lord. The call to heart purity is an attack on our kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Notice that it's not just those who are peaceful, and it's not just those who want peace. It is those who are actively working for peace. That's what a peacemaker is. It's easy to say, oh, I just want peace. It's easy to just stay out of conflict and say, well, that'll bring peace. No, peacemakers are those who go into conflict in an effort to bring peace. Biblical peace is never just an absence of conflict. It is actively dealing with the sin that is causing the conflict. We get peace by actively applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to our situation. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this sermon. He is bringing peace through his preaching and even his call to repentance. Now, how did the crowds receive that? Oh, Jesus, thanks for pointing out our sin and the fact that we need to repent. Do you think they experienced this as a peaceful thing? No. No, in fact, it starts with conflict. He has to cause us to have conflict in our own heart. We have to have a conflict with our own sin before we can repent. And so Jesus is being a peacemaker even by pointing out their sin. We don't bring peace by being troublemakers. We don't bring peace by insulting people. And we don't bring peace just by arguing. I'm convinced there are a lot of Christians today that think that we will bring peace through fine-sounding arguments and putting our opponents in their place instead of bringing the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look at the blessing. The NIV has, for they will be called children of God. A better translation is they will be called sons of God. To be a son of God, he's not just talking about belonging to God's family twins that were part of the disciples. They were called the sons of thunder. It didn't literally mean that thunder was their dad. It meant they were like thunder. They were like him. They were boisterous. They were active. They were, you know, the rough and tumble guys. They would get in your face and confront you. They were sons of thunder. That's what he's talking about here. They'll be called sons of God. When we are peacemakers, we are living and acting and speaking like our father. We are bringing the peace that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring. Our kingdom says we should fight for our rights. 
we should keep on arguing until everybody sees just how right we are. The call to be a peacemaker is an attack on our kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that this is being persecuted because of righteousness. It's not being persecuted because you don't want to wear a mask. It's not being persecuted because we can or cannot meet in person as a church. This is being persecuted because of everything that Jesus has just said. Because of righteousness. Righteous living is living in line with the Beatitudes. Being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker. And Jesus is saying all those things, as wonderful as they sound, guess where they might lead? Persecution. Persecution. Why? Because when we live this way, and people see us, they understand that their kingdoms are under attack. And they don't like it. We don't even necessarily have to say anything. Just living righteously in this world causes people to get upset. We're not out to attack people's kingdom. We are out to live the kingdom of heaven so that others would see it. Jesus expounds on this in verses 11 through 12. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says in verse 10 that we would be persecuted because of righteousness. And now he says you will be persecuted because of me, Jesus. So so do you understand what he's doing there? He's just linked those two things. The way of righteousness is following Jesus Christ. And what's our response to be to this persecution? (laughs) Rejoice and be glad. Not because the persecution is so wonderful, because it's not. But because when we endure persecution, when we face persecution for the sake of righteousness, it shows that we are following our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are living the kingdom of heaven. Everything in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount requires a heaven-focused attitude. Not living for here and now, not living for ourselves, but living for the eternal glory of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in persecution goes against the ideas of our kingdom. We want comfort. We want to get rid of all threats to our comfort. And a call to endure persecution is an attack on our kingdom. In the Beatitudes, and as we walk through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in the next couple weeks, Jesus launches a full-scale attack on our personal kingdom. Be careful as you walk through this. We must have two extremes. One is, okay, Jesus, I'll just do what you say and then I'll be good. We need to go back to poor in spirit. Don't read what Jesus is saying and take that as a checklist to be rich in spirit, self-righteous. Listen to what Jesus is saying and respond, I need Jesus that much more. 
the other thing we need to be careful about is that we don't just look at our own heart and just start hating ourselves. Because through all of this is the call to repent. Yes, it's turning away from who we are and where we're going in our own kingdom. But remember, it's always a turning to our Savior and His kingdom. That is behind everything that Jesus is saying. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records that the crowds were amazed. Amazed. Not heartbroken. Not mourning. Not even changed. But they are amazed. Throughout Matthew, we'll see that the crowds are amazed. But often, they don't understand. They're entertained, but they're not changed. They want Jesus and their kingdom. And if I could be so bold, each and every one of us struggles with the exact same thing. And I pray that the Sermon on the Mount would confront our kingdom and that we would respond with longing for the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we walk through this passage and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in the next couple weeks, may we be appropriately confronted. And God, as we are challenged by you, we're going to want to put up walls in our hearts and our thoughts and in our lives. And I pray instead, Father, that we would show that we are poor in spirit. That we would recognize our great need of you because when we understand our need for you, we get to see the amazing ways that you fulfill our needs. And our ultimate need is to be saved by your son, Jesus Christ. And you love to meet that need. And Father, right now in our world, in our culture, even in our city, people need to see the kingdom of heaven in action. Father, I pray that you would tune our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would live out these beatitudes in our own life. That we would allow ourselves to be confronted. Allow our kingdoms to be confronted. That we would truly look to you. And to say, save us. Heal us. And use us as a demonstration of the character and nature of your kingdom. That others might see your gospel in action. And turn to your son to be saved. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.